Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hello and welcome to In Social Work. I'm Luann Beck, your host for this episode. We're heading towards the end of summer here in Buffalo and the beginning of a new academic year. As we begin this transition, I would like to take this opportunity to thank you, our listeners, for your continued loyalty and support. The worldwide Me Too movement has raised awareness about sexual abuse, including issues of sexual harassment in the workplace, and has heightened attention to the long-term implications that can result from the trauma of past abuse. Moreover, there has been considerable progress made in relation to recognizing the various forms of PTSD and the importance of maintaining a strong therapeutic alliance when working with trauma survivors. In this podcast, Dr. Judith Herman engages in an informative conversation on current issues and perspectives concerning trauma and trauma-informed care. She discusses research on justice from the perspective of trauma survivors, how this is related to the Me Too movement, and why individuals who are victims of abuse choose to speak out. The relevance of the therapeutic alliance is stressed, particularly when working with individuals who have been traumatized by interpersonal violence. Dr. Herman considers the progress and relevance of changes within the DSM-5 PTSD diagnostic criteria, how chronic shame is related to dissociation and PTSD, and the consequences of forming an insecure attachment. The episode concludes by providing examples on how resilience can be built through community-based interventions and lead to more secure attachments. Judith Herman, MD, is Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. For 30 years, she was Director of Training at the Victims of Violence Program at the Cambridge Hospital in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Dr. Hermit has lectured widely on the subject of sexual and domestic violence. She is the recipient of numerous awards and in 2007 was named a Distinguished Life Fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. She was interviewed in May 2019 by Dr. Mickey Spurlick, Assistant Professor here at the UB School of Social Work. We would like to mention that this episode contains some background distortions that are due to technical problems we experienced while recording. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy the podcast. Dr. Herman, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your expertise and your experience. I really appreciate you. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. I know you've been doing research on justice and what that looks like from the perspective of trauma survivors, and I'm interested in how you see this perspective playing out in this current age of the Me Too movement. I did a study with in-depth interviews of survivors of sexual and or domestic violence over 10 years ago now. And I asked them what justice would look like if they were ever consulted. What would make things right for them or as right as things could be? And what they said did not really fit with our common notions of 
criminal justice or even civil law. The thing that they most wanted, there was almost unanimity on this point, was acknowledgement of both the facts of the abuse and also the harm that was done. And they wanted acknowledgement not just from the perpetrator or not even primarily from the perpetrator, but mainly from the bystanders, from the community. If, for example, there was sexual abuse or incest within the family, the adult survivor wanted the family to acknowledge what had happened. And if it required a confession from the perpetrator to get the family to believe the survivor, then they wanted that. But it was bystanders, the community, that people really wanted to know and to acknowledge, not to be part of the cover-up, not to turn a blind eye to what had happened. And second to acknowledgement of the fact they wanted denunciation of the crime. They wanted the bystanders to say, this happened, it hurt you, and it was wrong. They wanted the bystanders to denounce the crime and to denounce the perpetrator, and in some ways to take the burden of shame off the victim and move it onto the shoulders of the perpetrator. And so beyond that, they were not terribly invested in punishment of the offender, and they were also not terribly invested in forgiveness or reconciliation. In fact, as one survivor put it, he said, I've had enough trouble just dealing with my own recovery. I don't need to deal with his recovery. He needs to make his peace with God, and I don't want to have to be part of his recovery. I don't want to deal with him anymore. That was kind of the general consensus. In a certain way, I think, the Me Too movement, in a rough way, really, because there are no standard procedures here. It's all being improvised. But they are mainly talking about acknowledgement. Acknowledgement that very powerful men at the head of various media organizations who have used their power to exploit women sexually need to be exposed and need to be shamed. And beyond that, what punishment they should suffer, with the exception, I guess, of Harvey Weinstein, no one is facing criminal charges and none of the survivors seem to be terribly invested in criminal punishment, imprisonment, or even fines. There are some civil actions, but the remedies that the justice system offers, whether it's fines in civil law or whether it's imprisonment in criminal law, these were not the remedies that survivors were most interested in. In fact, certainly imprisonment for offenders, most survivors were not invested in that. They wanted some sort of prevention so that the offenders would not continue to harm others. But unless imprisonment was the only method of keeping the community safe, survivors by and large didn't want punishment for punishment's sake. It was not as though the laws have been broken and so standard punishments have to be applied. That was not the mentality at all. 
So with Me Too, what we're seeing is public exposure, public shaming. And this seems very much in keeping with what survivors want and need. In that sense, it seems like it's more about incapacitating the perpetrator from continuing to do what they're doing. Exactly. I was watching the documentary on the Larry Nasser situation mm-hmm. with the gymnast, and it seemed that that was, at the end of the day, a prime motivating factor for why many women came forward was, mm-hmm. if I don't speak out, then this person's going to keep doing this to other people. So how can we incapacitate the person from having the chance or the ability to do this and access to Right. And usually if there's public exposure and if he's removed from his position of power, then he doesn't have the opportunity. People will be warned about him and they will not be seduced. By the way, I have a theory about me too, which I've never seen written about anywhere. And that is that it has to do with what happens when women enter patriarchal male-dominated organizations. And when we're below, say, 15 to 20 percent of the membership of the organization, then we're token women and we have to basically be one of the boys and nothing much happens in the way of change. But my theory is that when women reach between 15 and 20 percent of the organization, then change begins to happen. Women begin to get together. And one of the first things that women have to do is clean house, is clean up the messes that the boys club has made. We saw this in psychiatry in the 1980s. I was a member of the Committee on Women of the American Psychiatric Association and we had a feminist committee and what we did was conduct a nationwide study on sexual contact, we put it in a very neutral term, between psychiatrists and patients because it was the same sort of situation there where there were certain psychiatrists who were exploiting patients and everybody knew you don't send young women to that guy. But nobody did anything about it until we reached this critical mass and we did the study and what do you know about 6% of psychiatrists acknowledged. It was an anonymous survey and in fact some of the perpetrators were very keen to tell us all about what they did because it was so highly rationalized and they They had so many excuses for why what they did was really okay. And so once we brought this to public attention, we published the results of the American Journal of Psychiatry. The editor sent the paper out to seven reviewers. Usually they send it to two. And the reviewers all came back and said, gee, you know, the methodology is pretty good. We don't see anything wrong with this study and maybe you should publish it. So they did. Started to do something about the bad actors in our own organization. Well, women in the media, women in film certainly had just reached in the recent decade that crucial 20% number. I know it seems odd, but turns out that women in leading roles in top 100 grossing movies are like 20% because so many of them are sort of male action figures and so on. And women behind the camera, women producers, directors, camera women and so on are about at that 20%. And I think it's not a coincidence that it's at that moment that, again, the denunciation of 
of the bad actors that everybody knows about and has known about for years. And that's when it, the Harvey Weinsteins of the organization start to be publicly exposed. So it's when they're not the only game in town anymore. I know that for several of the actresses that spoke out, they listed among the reasons why they didn't come out earlier was basically it would ruin their career. Absolutely. He had the power to make or break people's careers, and everyone knew it. And this was the price that women had to pay. And it's been going on for a long time. Yeah, and similarly at Fox News and CBS and so on, the same sort of story that the alpha males, if you will, saw this as one of the perks of their position was to have women on demand. Thank you. That's an interesting perspective, and that resonates true for me. Yeah. I don't know how you would conduct a study to find out if that 20% figure really is the tipping point, but we have now women a little over 20% of the U.S. Senate, and all of a sudden it seems possible that women could run for president, not because of their relationship to a powerful man, but because they got there on their own steam. The other place I found the 20% figure was in the U.S. military. And of course, we have the house cleaning going on about military sexual trauma. Well, I'm going to segue to another question for you. You have long suggested that the best way of looking at the many adaptations that people make to adjusting to the experience of having prolonged and repeated trauma, thought of as complex PTSD. And I know that you really encourage those were on the working group for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM, the fifth edition. I was a consultant. I wasn't actually on the PTSD working group. I was for oh, DSM-4. And you know, we tried to get complex PTSD in first at DSM-4, and we got it into the associated features only. And then for DSM-5... Well, I know that the upshot was that even though you encouraged them, a complex PTSD diagnosis was not adopted, and instead we have some changes to the PTSD or post-traumatic stress designation. We have a dissociative subtype now. We've had child PTSD and dissociative subtype, but we don't have that complex PTSD diagnosis that I know so many clinicians are really utilizing and resting into, and I'm just wondering if you could share your perspective on that process. Well, the good news is that the ICD-11, the International Classification of Diseases, which other countries besides the U.S. all use, has recognized complex PTSD as of 2018. So I guess the rest of the world is ahead of us on that. Now, their thinking, I think, was very sort of clear and from my point of view, parsimonious in a way. They had a basic PTSD category that more fits a single impact trauma, like an auto accident or a single assault or a natural disaster, that kind of experience that is horrible and terrifying, but once it's over, it's over. And they had kind of a simple set of categories or descriptors for classic PTSD. And then they had the more complex formulation of complex PTSD, which has a much wider range of symptoms for the effects of prolonged and repeated trauma, where you have a relationship of coercive control between the, a victim and a perpetrator. And the relationship starts to deform the personality of the 
victim or to form the personality of the victim as a child. So that's the good news. And the other good news is that with the DSM-5, they moved PTSD out of the category of anxiety disorders and into its own category. And I think what that symbolized is an understanding that PTSD is not just about fear and anxiety and terror. It has a much wider impact. And and it also set the stage for understanding a spectrum, if you will, of traumatic disorders. You have the sort of basic PTSD and then you have the dissociative subtype, which makes sense. And then you might think of the dissociative disorders as sort of further out on the spectrum of traumatic disorders. And there, of course, the dissociative disorders are very highly correlated, prolonged and repeated trauma, particularly in childhood. So there was progress. And the other thing that happened was that many of the symptom categories that I described in formulated complex PTSD were imported into the the definition of basic PTSD. So in some ways, the categories have been sort of blurred, and what you find in the DSM-5 PTSD description, if you will, is complex PTSD without the name. So that's the progress of sorts. It's a compromise. It's interesting, the arguments of the people who didn't want complex PTSD recognized in the DSM was that the research hadn't been done to define precisely what did and did not fit in that category. And I argued that that was something that had to happen after you had the basic recognition of the concept, and then you could put in a proposal for funding for research. That's what happened with PTSD when it was recognized in the Diagnostic Manual DSM-3 in 1980 for the first time. And it was recognized not because a lot of research had been done, but because basically of the advocacy of returning Vietnam veterans who wanted recognition of what had happened to them. They said, we're home, but we still have Vietnam in our minds and we can't get free of it. And we want recognition that this is a real condition. It's as real as shrapnel wounds and bullet wounds, and it's because of their advocacy that PTSD was recognized. Right, and once that diagnosis was codified, like you say, then we see the rise of applying this diagnosis and research measures and studies to show the extent to which this is true also for women. Right, and we begin to get good epidemiological studies to see how widespread it is, how common it is. We discover that 5% of men and 10% of women have this diagnosis or have had it at one time in the U.S. We could never have done that if we didn't have a name for what this condition was. As a person sort of related to this, all of this, I'm very influenced by the field of attachment and the infant mental mm-hmm. health movement in this country, and, and mm-hmm. I'm very interested in your views on how the development of shame in the context of early attachment relationships, how chronic shame states are related to dissociation and post-traumatic stress that we've been talking about. 
and I'm just hoping you'd share more about that with us. We talked a little bit earlier about moving the burden of shame from the victim to the perpetrator by having the community witness and denounce what has been done. But I think there is a way in which relationships of dominance and subordination, which relationships of coercive control, relationships in which abuse is chronic, are inherently shaming and humiliating. There's something in us that rebels against being dominated, being humiliated. And so, for example, there was a study done in the UK with crime victims that looked at shame in the aftermath of the crime and found that shame in the immediate aftermath of the crime was the most powerful predictor of developing PTSD in the aftermath. And there was another study done by researchers in upstate New York in a hospital looking at the relationship between shame and dissociation, and they found two interesting things. Patients with high shame had much higher dissociation scores than patients with low shame, but patients who did not have a childhood abuse history, their dissociation scores were still within the normal range, both high shame, the high shame group and the low shame group. But patients who had a childhood abuse history, the low shame group was still in the normal range in terms of dissociation scores. This high shame group had very high dissociation scores up in the range where you would begin to suspect a dissociative disorder. So those were two interesting studies, I think, that gave us good data on the relationship. And then at my Victims of Violence program at Cambridge Hospital, which is an outpatient trauma program, we asked patients to fill out a bunch of self-report questionnaires when they first came into treatment, and then we repeated the reports at intervals because we were hoping to document that our patients actually did get better, and happily, we were able to document that, whether you were measuring shame, whether you were measuring dissociation, whether you were measuring PTSD, or any other measure, most of the patients improved significantly. But what we found was that looking at measures when people filled out that questionnaire for the first time, that set of questionnaires. Shame was a predictor of PTSD, of dissociation, highly, highly correlated with dissociation. And it was also highly correlated with suicidal ideation, having a suicide plan or a belief that one might eventually commit suicide and actually having made a suicide attempt. So we're talking about something that is pretty toxic. And when you think about how shame develops, you can really think about it as a measure of attachment or a measure of a safe connection. Shame appears in the toddler years. Eric Erickson describes the essential conflict of the toddler years are as autonomy versus shame and doubt. And by autonomy, of course, it doesn't mean that a toddler is an autonomous person because a toddler is still very much in need of care and protection. But what toddlers are trying to do is to learn to regulate their 
own wishes and desires in connection with others so that the toddler who wants to hold the spoon and feed herself is reaching for autonomy, if you will, but needs to learn how to do it properly so the food goes into the mouth rather than on the floor and everywhere else. And similarly with toilet training, when you toilet train a toddler, it's not that his poop is disgusting and horrible and he's dirty and filthy. It's that it would be so much nicer if he did it in the toilet instead of in the diaper. So he's learning to regulate his body and his wishes in connection with the social world. Alan Shore describes the interactions of shame as a returning toddler running up to, excited, running up to the caretaker saying, look at me, look at me, and encountering a caregiver who is busy or tired or just can't pay attention right then. And what happens with securely attached children is that the toddler makes this abashed face, the face of shame, the loss of eye contact, the bowed head, the bowed shoulders, the slump sort of wanting to sink through the floor position. And with securely attached toddlers, the caretaker seeing that abashed look will say, oh, come, come now. It's not that bad. Give a hug. And the breach in attachment is repaired. That doesn't happen with insecurely attached children. And so what you see with insecure attachment is the development of chronic shame state and a sense of inner badness. And then especially in cases of abuse, it's almost a logical worldview to take forward that there must be something deeply flawed with me that this is happening to me. Well, first of all, of course, perpetrators make sure to either prey on children who are insecurely attached and they can pick that up very quickly, or they make sure to interfere in the relationship between the child and the primary caretaker. And so to prevent, if you will, a secure attachment from developing. Because if there were secure attachments, a child could go to the caretaker and ask for protection and talk about what the perpetrator was doing. And presumably the caretaker could intercede. So basically for chronic abuse to keep happening in childhood, the perpetrator really has to actively prevent secure attachment from developing. Right, or engage in the type of grooming behavior to draw the child into an attachment relationship in that way. Mm-hmm. Right, well, to draw the child into a disorganized attachment where the price of care and affection is exploitation and cruelty. Well, we're on the subject of childhood abuse. Twenty years ago, when I started looking at the effects of trauma during the childbearing, mm-hmm. there was mm-hmm. very little awareness of the adverse childhood experiences study or trauma-informed care. Mm-hmm. Now, I used to give talks and ask people who had heard of these things, and you know, maybe one hand would go up in, in the audience, and now a lot of people have heard of these things, and mm-hmm. become almost buzzwords in some circles, and I wonder if you might speak to where you see the rise of the ACEs study in perspective and trauma-informed care in this sort of long trajectory of addressing trauma, and in particular wondering if there's any cautions or pitfalls you see us falling into with this increased awareness, and whether we can be more hopeful now that there is more awareness. I can speak to what I've seen with the residents I supervise and the psychology trainees, and certainly they all know about the ACEs study now. I mean, that is a real 
real service that Dr. Felidi and his colleagues have done for the country and the world. I think what really got public attention was documenting the connection between adverse childhood experiences and the 10 leading causes of death in terms of heart disease, lung disease, liver disease, and of course the mediating variables, if you will, are cigarette addiction, alcohol, substance abuse, IV drug use, and suicidality. So you really see how incredibly powerful the impact of childhood adversity can be. So people have heard about that, but judging from the residents I supervise, they don't know what comes next. I mean, they may have heard the buzzword trauma-informed care, but they don't know what that means. And I've supervised the third-year and fourth-year residents at Cambridge Hospital every year. And the questions I get at the beginning of the year are usually, if I get a trauma history, what do I do with it? And a lot of fear of making patients worse by paying too much attention to the trauma. Will that be destabilizing? Will that exacerbate their post-traumatic stress symptoms? So people may get the history now, but they don't really know what to do with it. And a lot of what I teach at the beginning is really the patient will tell you. You can tell by how the patient reacts whether you're treading too abruptly into a sensitive area. But what you do need to communicate to the patient is that you are ready and prepared to hear about it because otherwise it leaves the patient still in a shamed and isolated place where he or she doesn't dare speak about what happened. So you have to be curious, be interested be compassionate, just as you are with any other issue. And if you form a good alliance with the patient, you're doing trauma-informed care. I guess the other thing I have to say is that forming a good alliance is something that may take some work because people who have been traumatized by interpersonal violence have reason to be very distrustful of others, especially others in positions of power and authority. And so you may need to be open about the fact that you don't expect trust right away and you know that that has to be earned and built and that's something you're prepared to do. So be transparent, share your thinking and build a relationship and that will be an antidote to the exploited relationship that the patient has suffered. That is something I've really, to me, seen to thread throughout your work and something I've really appreciated this idea that the healing comes through relationships. Oh, I don't see any other way, really. And by the way, if you're looking for an evidence base, the data now from numerous studies shows that the therapeutic alliance is the single most powerful predictor of positive outcome in psychotherapy. And beyond that, the particular technique or therapeutic school that the therapist adheres to accounts at most for maybe 10% of the variance. And so some of the research is that have done this work promote what they call now the dodo bird theory from Alice in Wonderland where the dodo bird says that all have won and all shall have prizes. So it doesn't really matter what your therapeutic technique is. If you build a good alliance, you'll get a prize. 
people need to know that you care about them at the end of the day. I think we're starting to see that same phenomenon in other areas of medicine as well, that it perhaps matters a lot more than we thought, just that your doctor's listening to you, even for garden variety ailments. Absolutely. What particular medicine that he or she might prescribe that kind positive regard? Unfortunately, the way we figured that out is because now with electronic medical records having been introduced most places and with the speed up of the production line for doctors, now that doctors are not for the most part self-employed but are non-unionized employees of exploitative system, you have 15-minute doctor's appointments in which doctors are looking at the computer screen instead of looking at the patient. And what do you know? That doesn't work out so well, either for the doctor or the patient. Patients hate it and doctors hate it. And burnout among physicians is at the highest level it's ever been. Related to that, when I look at ACEs and the trauma-informed perspective, you know, mm-hmm. this sort of bridging concept here that we're going moving towards is resilience. And I'm, of course, very hopeful that we gain a better understanding of all the ways in which we think that resilience can be built. But I worry that in some cases we're putting resilience out there as this sort of bar to jump over without providing the necessary tools and resources that it's really going to take to get at the root causes of distress in people's lives. Oh, yeah. I do think resilience has become a buzzword. We do have some good studies about what makes for resilience. Two that I'd like to talk about. One was done the island of Kauai in Hawaii where a researcher named Amy Werner and her colleagues followed an entire birth cohort from one year from birth to adulthood with frequent interviews and they found a particularly resilient group that had had childhood hardship but did well as they developed and there were quite a few predictors and some of them were things like having at least two years before the next child was born, which means that the mother needed to have some control over her reproductive life. And then the kinds of things that you would expect having, if not the primary caretaker, at least some caretaker in the child's life that was available and nurturing. And then having a peer, being good at something, intelligence helped, being good at something in school, having some group to belong to, whether it was church group or a sports team or any other place where the person felt a sense of belonging. So you're looking at really relational predictors of resilience. The other study was done by a psychologist named Carlin Lyons-Ruth at Cambridge Hospital, and she did also a prospective longitudinal study where she followed families that had been referred because there was some concern about the parenting, often young, depressed teens single mothers, for example. But in this study, there was intervention, and there were two intervention groups. One was a group that got weekly home visits by social workers who worked with the moms and did both practical things to help out, getting food stamps, helping with housing, whatever the mom needed, but also sat with the mom and the baby and kind of modeled what tuned care looks like and gave a lot of information about normal 
development. When the child cries, it's not because the child hates you. It's because the diaper's wet. And this went on only till the babies were 18 months old. There was a second group that had the same kind of home visiting, but with community women who didn't have any kind of formal credential, but were selected because they were thought of as good mothers. And they did the same kind of weekly home visits. Both the social workers and the community women got weekly supervision themselves in a group. So there was a holding environment for the caregivers, and then there was a holding environment for the mom. And the moms, in turn, provided a holding environment for the infants. And there was a control group that only got pediatric care as usual, randomly assigned. The two intervention groups were followed as they developed. And what they found was that in the intervention groups, the majority of kids were securely attached, whereas in the group that didn't get the intervention, oh, two-thirds of the kids were insecurely attached. And once you had secure attachment, you had a virtuous cycle so that the kids did better in school, they made friends, they got on track developmentally. So the source of resilience was early home visiting for isolated moms. And there have been many studies now that look at the powerful effects of home visiting for first-time young mothers who are dealing with poverty or isolation or need help becoming good parents. And once you've got that, you've got resilience. Yeah, I agree. And the earlier the better. And the combination of not only providing that sort of modeling and what attuned care looks like, but also connecting to resources and helping to address some of the structural inequalities that are present in people's lives are really intractable. Well, and these things pay for themselves many, many times over. But of course, they don't pay for themselves immediately. They pay themselves 20 years down the road because just when you think about now the impact of ACEs and you're talking about the costs in medical care, in psychiatric care, costs in terms of the educational deficits that abused and insecurely attached children suffer and the percentage that end up themselves being victimized or having early pregnancies or getting involved in the legal system. And you're preventing a host of medical, psychological, and social problems And yet, if your frame of reference is the two-year electoral cycle of Congress, you're not going to vote for these things because you're not going to be able to show the outcome immediately. Well, we have covered a lot of ground here, and we just wanted to give you a chance to kind of sum up or add to or pose a question or a challenge for all of us or just anything else that you'd like to contribute to this conversation. Oh, I'm not sure I have any other words of wisdom. We have covered a lot, and <laughs> I, I do want to thank you because, you know, you've talked about some of my pet issues and things that I really care a lot about, so thank you. Well, thank you so much. You have and are a real role model for me, and I want to thank you for that. You've been listening to Dr. Judith Herman's discussion on trauma and trauma-informed care in the age of the Me Too movement. I'm Luann Beck. Please join us again at In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, 
our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.